Good morning. Welcome back, those of you who were away last week for the holidays. I myself was back with my family in Minnesota. Those of you who were here, you got to hear from Ryan Sohavy, one of our other pastoral apprentices, and he shared the word from Colossians. I had a chance to listen to it on my drive back from Minnesota, and I remember being especially struck. He reminded us um, from Colossians 1 that Jesus is not only the one through whom all things were created, but he reminded us that even now he's the one who's sustaining our every heartbeat. So when you see Ryan, give him a pat on the back. Also, you can find his sermon online. Let me start by praying for us. Lord God, we acknowledge that it is a privilege to be able to gather here, to, to be able to, to spend time reflecting on your word, to, to receive instruction, wisdom that is beyond our own. And so we ask for your blessing upon this time. We ask for open hearts and minds, and that you would highlight whatever, um, whatever comes out of my mouth that people need to hear. We pray that you would highlight that in their hearts through the work of your spirit. We ask this in the power of your name. Amen. Some of you who, who know me, you know that over the past few years, I've um, had a chance to help out with a few refugee families. Here in Chicago, there's a, a ministry called Exodus World Service that matches people up with new families coming from places like Iraq, um, Nepal, um, I think a lot from the Congo recently. And I know there are a lot of other people in this church who do that as well. The, the first time I was able to do this was a few years ago when I was still living in Madison. It was a, a Bhutanese family from Nepal, and they had been in the States for about five months. And I had the chance just to, to be a helpful friend, um, visit them about once a week, and just hang out, help them figure out forms and stuff like that. And one of the things that stood out to me in this experience was there was probably over 100 um, people in this neighborhood in Madison from, from Nepal and Bhutan. And it was a very strong community. They were just very networked with each other. They helped each other out a lot. I can remember walking with my friend Bishnu. We would go um, a few apartments away, knock on the door. They would have no idea we were coming. And yet they would open, open up their place. They would serve us tea, uh, give us food. We would hang out for a while and then uh, move on somewhere else. There was a guy in the, the community who was sort of the de facto mechanic. People, when they had car problems, they would bring their car to him and he would troubleshoot. He'd point them in the right direction if he couldn't fix it himself. They would help each other find jobs, places like restaurants and hospitals, um, janitorial services, hotels. And so in a lot of ways, they really just helped each other out. Collectively, they were at a disadvantage. They didn't know, um, they didn't know English that well. Um, they didn't know American culture, idioms of speech. They didn't understand how our institutions worked, banks and hospitals and insurance and stuff like that. But in spite of all that disadvantage, they really did a lot to, to help each other thrive. Well, the reason I mention all that is because today we're looking at 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11, if you want to start turning there. This is a passage that basically calls us to be like that refugee community, a community that is for each other, that looks after each other, supports each other. This is a, a passage that really encouraged me a lot this last summer. I was working as an Uber driver in between classes, and it was a, a passage that I went to that uh, was just great encouragement to, to keep my head straight, to um, be ready to engage in people who are open to having spiritual conversations. I learned a lot about this passage in the process of preparing this, and um, turns out the, the things that drew me to it are only sort of a, a minor emphasis in the passage. I'll explain more as we go. Let me start by reading it. This is 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 7. 
The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Since today we're we're looking at just four verses from this one chapter in Peter, and it's a standalone message, I want to start by just giving you some context. I'm explaining what these four verses are doing within the whole book. A big theme in 1 Peter is that there is a a rift between the Christian community and the the rest of society at large. Um, In Peter, they're just categorically referred to as Gentiles. The beginning of the letter and the opening verses, Peter refers to his his readers as being exiles. And and elsewhere in the book, it refers to them as being in exile. In a sense, he's saying that Christians are kind of like refugees in the world because of um, a separation that Christ's work in us has brought about. Jesus said, we are no longer of the world, and so the world does not love us as its own. The community of believers that he's writing to, they're experiencing suffering. The verses both before and after um, our passage in chapter 4 allude to this. In 4.1, it it says that they should be prepared to suffer like Christ did. They should arm themselves with the same mentality that he had. In 4.4, it talks about other people being surprised that Christians don't do the things that they're doing. They're not living in passions and sensuality and drunkenness, sexual immorality and lawless idolatry. The rest of the world is surprised that the Christian community is not doing this, and they malign them for it. And then immediately after our passage in verse 12, it picks up again, and um, Peter says that they should not be surprised at the fiery trial that they're experiencing. He says it's not something strange. It's what is to be expected. And he says that when a person is insulted for the name of Christ, that person is actually blessed, and God is even glorified in the process. As American Christians today, we don't suffer the same way that a lot of the New Testament era era Christians did, and even the way that a lot of other Christians around the world do today. That is something that we can praise God for. At the same time, it doesn't mean we don't suffer at all. I would argue that a lot of the suffering we experience in our context today comes through the form of associations, social relationships. As you go about living, speaking for Christ, at some point you're going to experience someone who just flat out does not like you for that. And that's probably going to sting a little bit. You might experience friends who who distance themselves from you because they're just not feeling this whole Jesus thing. You might experience coworkers talking behind your back, accusing you of being self-righteous. Maybe you're dating someone and they, they break things off. Someone might just flat out ridicule you, right? Who knows, there might even be someone here who, in his eighth grade band class, was made fun of and subsequently dumped because he didn't want to be sexually active with his girlfriend of two weeks. You might have guessed that was me. Um, Not a fun experience. Our passage today, it's situated in the context of suffering, 
And it's interesting, in the midst of this suffering, Peter's solution and the solution that's held up elsewhere in Scripture is this. Look to the end. God's final judgment, his reconciliation, renewal of all things, this is what Peter calls us to look for. This is what is to govern our behavior. Looking to the end helps us endure. Things might not be so great now, but they will be. God's promises are incredible, and he will fulfill them. And also, I find it interesting in this passage, Peter doesn't tell his readers, in spite of this, this outward pressure, he doesn't tell them to fight fire with fire, um, not an eye for an eye, not a tooth for a tooth. He doesn't even tell them to expose the ridiculous incoherence of a lot of the accusations against the Christian community. Instead, he, he calls them to basically hold strong together. We can summarize 7 through 11 by saying that we need to live for the end by loving into the church. Live for the end by loving into the church. Those outside the faith might think that Christians are strange because of what they believe, because of what they do and what they don't do. But at the end of the day, if we're a community that loves each other, that looks after each other, cares for each other, that'll speak volumes for itself and it will also authenticate our outward witness. We live for the end because the end is at hand. This is what Peter starts off with in verse 7. Someone might object that, Chris, this is New Year's. This might not be the most appropriate passage. Happy New Year. The end is at hand. Right? I hope this doesn't kill your thunder for that resolution to lose 10 pounds. It shouldn't, right? And if your resolution is to memorize more scripture or something like that, by all means, that, that should encourage that. And in case someone says, look, Peter wrote this about 2,000 years ago, you know, is it possible he was wrong? Peter is, he's actually writing this with a frame of mind that the end had already begun. You see this sort of alluded to in, in chapter 1 and verse 20. Because Jesus had come, died, and risen again, the, he sort of inaugurated the, the last age of history, the, the age of the church, when God's people are empowered by God's Spirit. It's the, the last age before Christ comes back and, and all things are reconciled. And then also we can look at it this way. Even if the, the end of the end is still 5,000 years away, the end is still at hand for each of us. Our lives are short. James tells us that they are like a mist. They appear for a little while and then they vanish. And so we would be foolish not to take into account the end as we live out however, however many remaining days that we have. At the end of the day, one of the core governing motivations for us is knowing that one day we are going to stand before God and we are going to give an account for the way that we lived our lives, for what we said, for what we did, even what we thought. God alone will be our judge, and he is the one who will decide whether we are accepted into his presence um, to experience the new heavens, the new earth that he will establish, or whether we will be cast out from his presence forever in hell. God alone will be our judge. We are not our own. Fortunately, the New Testament says loudly and clearly that we can be sure God will accept us if we are united with Christ. This is the, the only factor God considers when he looks at us. It's like we get to, to link arms with Jesus, and when we stand before God, say, God, judge me based on his life, not on my own. And he will say, well done, good and faithful servant.
It's a free gift. There's not really any hoops we have to jump through. And at the same time, it completely changes our orientation as we live our life about everything. A pastor I used to, whose church I used to be at, he used to say that the salvation in Jesus is like a free gift that will cost you everything. And so if you've never considered that before, I think there's an intriguing irony there that's worth pondering. Remembering that the end is at hand drives each of the commands that Peter gives us today. We live for the end by loving into the church, first off, by being self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. This is what he tells us in verse 7. As we think about what it means to be self-controlled and sober-minded, fortunately, it does not mean we have to be killjoys, right? We celebrate things, we laugh about things, we enjoy each other's company. We're not walking around with our sad faces on all the time. And this book in chapter 1 talks about our salvation giving us an inexpressible and glorious joy. To be sober-minded literally means to, to not be drunk. And whether you've been drunk before or not, I want you to, to think about this with me because obviously this is more about more than alcohol consumption. To be drunk, in a sense, means that, that you're not feeling things. There, there are things in our lives that, that make us sad, that weigh us down, that make us worried. And when you're drunk, there's this chemically-induced euphoria that um, causes those things just to sort of recede into the background, and instead you, you just feel good for a little while. Instead, to be sober-minded means that we let ourselves feel things. The things that should drive us to our knees in prayer, we let it have that effect on us, and we respond in prayer because that's the proper outlet. We do that instead of disengaging from reality, using something else to, to dull the pain. Peter speaks to his audience um, in contrast to the Gentiles who, in verse 3, he says that they are living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. He's saying that they are being distracted, they are being lost in these things, they're, they're forgetting reality, and he says that they will be surprised by God's judgment. I imagine that as we think of things that distract us, that get in the way of our being sober-minded, we can... Think of things like social media. I saw an article on Desiring God's website that they surveyed 8,000 people and 70% of them said that they often looked at their phones um, in the morning before getting up, before engaging in time that they had set aside for spiritual disciplines. Social media is a big one. I think we can think of movie, TVs, sporting events, even playing sports, um, sex, substances, ambitions related to our careers and our finances. All sorts of things that can be good in their proper context and in their proper proportion, but outside of that are not only counterproductive, but can even be harmful and get in the way of us engaging in reality well. An example in my own life, I think of a pattern I saw in myself last semester. I try to keep this routine where uh, before going to bed, I uh, pray through a short passage and, and pray for people in my life. And oftentimes, leading up to that time, I'm, I'm working on something, I'm doing administrative tasks or, or studying for school. And I noticed this pattern where something would occur to me, it was bothering me, and I realized, you know, this would be a good thing to pray about. But, I, you know, knowing this time was coming up, I'd just sort of leave it for that. And then before finishing up my stuff, I, I would hop on Facebook, and before I knew it, I'm looking at videos of semis sliding into a ditch or someone riding a motorcycle 100 miles an hour through a traffic jam. And 
for some reason, that just sort of served as an emotional outlet. And when I would sit down, I would just sort of, you know, the, the zeal to pray wasn't there like it otherwise would be. There's a guy named Neil Postman that wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. It's a, a book where the, the title sort of says it all. He has this quote, and he says, Everything in our background has prepared us to know and resist a prison when the, the gates begin to close around us. But what if there are no cries of anguish to be heard? Who is prepared to take arms against a sea of amusement? To whom do we complain, and when, and what tone of voice, when serious discourse dissolves into giggles? What is the antidote to a culture's being drained by laughter? I've pretty much hit on entertainment. Uh, I think that's, that's a big one in our culture. Obviously, this is not the only thing that gets in the way of our being sober-minded. <coughs> if you are stewing in anger because of some conflict, if you're really anxious about something, all these have a way of putting interference between us and our relationship with God. They have a way of choking out our prayer life. And so, for the sake of your own spiritual vitality, for the sake of the spiritual vitality of the people that you should be praying for, don't disengage. Be self-controlled, be sober-minded, let yourself feel things, and pray as if prayer really matters, because it does. We live for the end by loving into the church through prayer. We also do this by loving each other and showing hospitality to each other. Because the end is at hand, love each other earnestly and show each other hospitality. See this in, in verses 8 and 9. This makes a lot of sense, right? Any church that's going to stay strong in the midst of outward persecution, outward pressure, it needs to be a church where its members realize that they are for each other, that there's this group solidarity and loyalty. Hospitality is ultimately an opening up of what you have, whether it's your space or your time or um, other resources. It's an opening up of what you have to, for the benefit of others, not just using it for your own interests. The church that Peter was writing to, like our church, it was a church full of sinful people. People who are not only not perfect, but who are not even close. The church should be a, a place where God's transforming work is evident, and um, this church is. But it's just that we're all really big projects, and there's a lot of unfinished work in us. It's important to, to take Peter's command seriously, because otherwise sin will divide us. Love binds a community together. Sin tears a community apart. Verse 8 says that love covers a multitude of sins. Just as an illustration, think of a time when you've been, you've been out to dinner and the server screwed up your order, brought you the wrong thing. If you could tell that that server cared about your experience, really wanted you to enjoy your time, was apologetic, chances are you probably didn't care about your order, right? You can wait another 15 minutes or maybe you'll eat what they put in front of you anyways. Or if you're lucky, you'll get both, right? If instead, though, if the server is a little bit aloof, if they're not checking in on you very often, if you can tell they don't really want to be there, well, now there's a good chance the people at the table are talking about how poor the service is. There's a chance that server's tip is in jeopardy, right? Love covers a multitude of sins. If, as a church, we don't know that we love each other, 
there are all sorts of things that can get in the way and, and divide us. That person who um, spouts off about some controversial political or social issue without thinking critically, thinking carefully about it, that person might find themselves alienated instead of receiving loving correction. The person in your ethos group whose prayer request is forgotten or um, who's not notified about some sort of scheduling change, that person might feel like they're purposely excluded. Or even worse, if you think that you were purposely excluded and you think you have legitimate reason to call foul, maybe you're willing to just write that person off instead of doing the hard work of, of pursuing reconciliation. Love binds a community together. Sin tears a community apart. That's always true. Um, It's even more true in the context that Peter is writing to. As we've seen, there's a lot of outward pressure. And when the pressure is on, we all have a tendency to look after our own interests and not the interests of others. And so knowing that this is the context, that this is the situation, and yet Peter says that above all, we need to love each other, that highlights how important that is. Here, as well as other places in the New Testament, love is held up as being a sort of super virtue, if you will. A virtue is just a a good character quality. Colossians 3 talks about, um, Paul instructs us to clothe ourselves with virtues like kindness, compassion, humility, gentleness, and patience. Um, Ryan actually hit on Colossians 3 last week, just before what it tells us to put on, it, it tells us to take off different patterns of sin in our life. And Ryan challenged us with that last week. After that, Paul tells us to put on these virtues, and he says that love is the one that binds them all together in perfect unity. So if you'll let me play with this analogy, if, if putting on these virtues is like clothing, um, say kindness is like a hat, gentleness is like a bracelet, humility is, is your shirt, love would be like the, the WWE wrestling championship belt, Right? giant golden thing that you just cannot see, cannot not see. No matter what the rest of the outfit is, that's the focal point. Love is the super virtue. In 1 Corinthians Corinthians 13, Paul says that if we don't have love, we have nothing. And 1 John basically makes the argument that if we're truly in Christ, we will love the family of believers. And if you don't, perhaps you should question your salvation. So for us, the question is is simple. Do we love the family of believers? One way that Peter sees this love manifesting itself is um, through hospitality. The early church thrived on hospitality through table fellowship, through opening up their homes for people. There were many traveling missionaries, and as you can imagine with the, the persecution that happened, it's likely that that caused a lot of displaced people. And through hospitality, that was one of the means that helped the church thrive in the midst of this persecution, not just survive. The fact that Peter tells us to not complain when we're showing hospitality implies that the the type of hospitality he has in mind is probably unplanned. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with with planned hospitality, but the the logic here is if you've planned on something, why would you complain, right? You, You agreed to it. Instead, it seems what he has in mind is someone's in a bind, something comes up, they're in a pinch, and someone else steps up to help out. Having a hospitable disposition, being willing to be called on, tapped for help, that does a lot to bind the church together, to keep it strong. 
I think our church does hospitality pretty well. I know of a number of people, younger people, who have been able to live with families in the church when they needed a place. I know of um, people who have lunch after church for newcomers so that they have a chance to, to meet some people and have some familiar faces. There are a lot of people who show hospitality by going to, to people where they are. We know of people helping out with senior connections, visiting elderly people who are often isolated. I've mentioned Exodus World Service, people helping out with refugees. These are all a, a strong testament to the love of Christ at work in us. And I think we can all show hospitality, and I challenge you to do this um, week after week just by saying hi to the person sitting near you, right? They might be new. It's great just to, to say hi. So we are to live for the end and help others live for the end by flexing our love and hospitality muscles. And then finally, Peter calls us to love into the church in light of the end by exercising our spiritual gifts under the power of God. Because the end is at hand, be a steward of the gifts God has given you and serve the church. I want to read verses 10 and 11 for us to see where this comes from. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Verse 10 says that each of us has received a gift. Sort of hitting on the subject of, of spiritual gifts, um, all of us, whether it's by virtue of our skills, our heart motivations, our abilities, personalities, and experiences, and just the empowerment of God, we're all better suited to serve the church in some ways and not as much in other ways. And so what we want to do is figure out what those ways are. The best way to learn how your gifting works is to use your gift. If you don't know what your gifting is, just jump in and try something um, Trial and error, uh, that's, that's a, a way to, to mature in your gifting. Verse 10 shows us that the purpose of our gifting is to serve one another. This is what it means to, to be a good steward, a responsible user of God's gifts. If a person was really talented at something, say they're just a phenomenal singer, and they were either unwilling to, to use their gifts to, to strengthen and edify the church, or for some reason when they did, it just didn't have that effect— we wouldn't really call that a spiritual gift. But for those talents that we know are spiritual gifts that do strengthen the church, we are not given gifts for the sake of being gifted. We're given gifts to use them, and we should stretch ourselves in doing so. Verse 11 tells us that as we exercise our gifts, we need to do so acknowledging the power of God. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. One who serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. This is one of the lines that really drew me to this passage. It's incredibly encouraging to know that when we try to serve in whatever fashion that God's behind us, that he's sort of amplifying our own meager efforts. But actually a, a large focus of this line is that when we exercise our gifts, we need to do so with humility. It sort of lumps all the giftings into to two general categories, speaking and doing, word and deed, if you will. And so seeing this emphasis on humility, to the one who speaks, whether 
it's preaching a sermon, whether it's talking to someone at a coffee shop, whether it's encouraging someone who's in a crisis, or just having a conversation with someone that you hit it off with in a checkout line randomly. We speak oracles of God. It's his wisdom that we speak and not our own. The one who serves as one who serves with the strength that God supplies. We don't serve just because we're more diligent than other people or we're, we have a better heart than other people. At the end of the day, it is God who empowers our service. It's necessary for us to remember that because otherwise we will grow prideful, grow prideful in our, when we operate in the areas of our gifting. So allow me to, to make another analogy. Say there's such a thing as being gifted for hammering, pat, tapping in a nail, and being gifted for screwdriving. Now, if you were to compare someone who is not gifted for screwdriving, say they're, they have a, just a straight-up screwdriver and they're just turning in a screw tediously, and you compare that to the person who, has, who is gifted, right? Who has the, the, the power drill and just, you know, takes two seconds to pound one in, they're moving along. It would be ridiculous to compare the person who's using a screwdriver to the person who has a power drill and just say that they're inferior to the person who's gifted, Right? If we forget that it is God who empowers our gifting, we will be that ridiculous. This passage's emphasis on humility, as well as elsewhere in the New Testament, this shows us that we don't need to be concerned about exactly what our gifting is and how it compares to another person's set of gifts. What we do need to be concerned about is whether we're using our gifting, whether we're stretching ourselves, whether we're growing and maturing in it. At the end of the day, we want to be people who strive to serve God by serving his church with humility and acknowledging and trusting his power. The last verse in this passage, it tells us what the result of following all these commands will be. God will be glorified. This is our end goal. This is what we're still here for. This is what gives us joy. If we take his command seriously here, if we're diligent in our prayer life, if we refuse to let things distract us um, and, and lead us astray, if we stretch ourselves to, to love each other and open up our lives and our space for each other, if we do everything we can to, to contribute to the church and keep it strong, God will be glorified in that. The church will be strengthened. If you can just imagine a church where everyone was involved, everyone was helping out, Instead of how most organizations, it's a small percentage of people who do most of the work. If there was a church where everyone's involved and somehow is organized so well that everyone was operating in the area of their gifting, that church would do so much. Its output would be incredible and, and people would not stop talking about it. I think we would all agree that, thinking back to that refugee community, there's a certain honor and dignity that comes to the way that they persevere in the midst of their hardships. In kind of a similar way, God has chosen that in this time, his people will experience suffering and rejection, disappointments, not just what everyone experiences, but, but we'll get an extra dose in this life. We get that because we are following Jesus, and he's the one who took suffering for us. And so our call is to live for the end, love into the church together, and do so by, by fixing our eyes on Jesus, right? He is the one who went before us. He's the one who, he saw the cross coming, but he saw the joy ahead. And so he scorned the shame of the cross, disregarded it, and 
knew that he was going to the right hand of the Father. So like Jesus, we are to live for the end. We're to look for what's set before us that far outweighs what we're experiencing now. So let us do that. Let me pray for us. Father, we we thank you for your word and we thank you for your spirit that keeps it in our minds, that reminds us of it when we need to hear it. And so we ask that you would do that for us. Pray that you would give us great joy in um, laying down our own interest for, for each other, to serve you, to experience you and your power more fully. And so we just ask for your blessing as we go about that in this new year and even today. We thank you. Amen. Before I leave, we're going to take up this morning's offering. So I invite the ushers to come forward. This is something that, that we do every week. Um, it's how we support that the, the ministry that our church does. And so if you're a guest with us today, we invite you just to, to let the, the plate pass by. If you are a member, if you do consider this to be your church home, uh, we challenge you to, to, to give, to give as an act of worship, to also give as an act of trust, knowing that, that God is ultimately our provider.